Okay, so we are back in our confession. We are dealing with section two of the confession, which is dealing with of the covenant. So the covenant being the covenant of grace, how people are saved throughout all time and history. And uh, we have started going through the first section was first principles. So important things you know about uh, what you need to know about the faith. So what about the scripture? What about God? Uh, doctrines of these things. Uh, so that's what we've kind of understood. Creation, God's decree, providence, all these different things we've saw before here. And that leads us into the covenant, which began in chapter 7. So chapter 7 was that overarching theme of how the covenants unfold throughout redemptive history and uh, how we see it uh, climax at the cross uh, the for the covenant of grace. Covenant mediator was then Jesus. We understood he is the mediator of the covenant. It's by him we partake of the blessings of the covenant. He endured the covenant curses for us. He is our perfect mediator. So then in chapter 10, we saw the effectual call. So we recall that this these things here are um, the covenant blessings. Chapter 10 to 13, which is where we find ourselves in. The covenant blessings are God's work that he does for us, that he does in us. This is his work. We can call it monergistic work. So this is his work, and we see that it is the call, effectual call. It's justification, adoption, and sanctification. These are his work that he does within us. Sure, there's responses that we do, but that's out of love and gratitude. And then we see that in the covenant graces in chapter 14 to 18. So we're back in chapter 11, and we are going to be looking predominantly at paragraph 3 today. And uh, we'll review just a little bit about the first two paragraphs. So we're dealing with justification. Justification. Um, this is a super important doctrine, and a doctrine which uh, needs to be precise on. If we're not precise, heresy comes on both sides. Um, and we see many, many people have fallen throughout church history into wrong thinking of justification. And uh, as we go on, we're going to talk about that. We're going to see examples. We're going to see quotes. And uh, through that, we're going to see um, how we can be precise and stay within our covenantal bounds. Uh, the covenant isn't to say this is what you know, the law is for us. That's the Bible. A, a confession here is something that tells us these are the boundaries. These are the guardrails. Here's what orthodoxy is, and here's what's outside the line. So we need to understand and see ourselves within orthodoxy, right? Everyone could say, I believe the Bible. The Bible's my confession, or the Bible's my creed. No creed but the Bible. It might sound pious. It might sound good, but really it doesn't tell you anything uh, as far as what someone believes. Uh, a heretic who denies the Trinity can say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible. See, there's no word Trinity there, so I'm not going to hold to the Trinity. Well, that's, that's a creed that they're holding. It's a wrong creed. The confession of faith for us is saying, here's what we believe the Bible teaches. We're very upfront. We're very much standing on the shoulders of men who've gone before us who are saying, here's the doctrines we believe the Bible upholds. So while it might sound pious, that's a form of biblicism, right? I, no creed but the Bible. We all have to make interpretive decisions. What does the Bible mean? What is it saying? And so this is what the confession of faith is to us. It is a document of different doctrines that we believe are crucial to the faith that are summarized in the scripture. And how we put it here in this confession of faith is a systematic way of approaching it. So in other words, by topics. 
doctrines, right? So we're in the doctrine of justification. And so it's important that we stand on the shoulders of men who've gone before, who fought these battles, who are able to see um, where these errors have happened. So we don't pretend to be people who just say, you know what, I'm just coming to the Bible like the first time ever. No, we stand on the shoulders of men who've gone before us, whom the Spirit has worked in, and we can understand that because battles have been fought and won, and clarity has resulted as that. So we benefit from that. That's why we hold two confessions. We believe the 1689, the Baptist Confession, to be that confession that is most in tune with what we believe as a church. So for justification, um, if we were to just sum up the, you know, if you were to define what is justification, uh, what is maybe an example? How would you define it in your own words? What does justification mean? Good. Yeah, so it's a legal declaration. We want to think courtroom setting. This is something that happens um, in, at the start of our faith when we first believe, right? Because we are, it's by grace through faith that we are counted right with God. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is. And his representation goes to our account. So some people have said, justification is just as if I never sinned. Partially true. If you just never sinned, your slate is at zero, right? But what justification also means is you're righteous. And so justification is standing just as if I never sinned because Christ has paid for my sins and credited me his righteousness, so I'm fully righteous and forgiven. And that's how we stand before, uh, before God. And so these are things that are crucial that we understand. Um, we started going through uh, paragraph one here, which is dealing with kind of the nature of justification. So if we are to sum up justification in one paragraph, paragraph one is that paragraph. Paragraphs two to the rest of the chapter, all the way to paragraph six, are continuing to flush out in more detail what paragraph one is saying. So the fullness of the doctrine can be seen here and then we start to see it in a bit more detail. So let's just look at this, and we'll just read it, maybe quote here and there. Um, remember, uh, it's been said, justification is the pillar on which the church stands or falls. So how one holds justification determines the validity of the church, if you have a true church or not. Um, R.C. Sproul says, you lose justification, you lose Christianity. Right? And there's been battles that have been fought um, in light of these things. And... If you don't have the gospel, you don't have a true church. So how can a sinner stand in the presence of God, a sinner stand in the presence of God who is holy and righteous? Well, the doctrine of justification is the answer to that. So let's read paragraph one. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing or unrighteous. Or in our court setting, we hear guilty or innocent, right? So it's so much more than innocent. It's, it's righteous, okay? Now, this is something that God declares on the onset 
of the Christian life. So when someone is regenerated, right, the effectual call must come first. Because it's only when you've been made alive that you can have true faith, right? And so once we have been made alive, we've been given a new heart, we start to desire the things of the Lord, we can actually respond to that by faith. And faith is something that's also, this paragraph says, faith is a gift. It's not a work. Now, yes, justification comes through the instrumentality of faith, but faith is not something we do and muster up in and of ourselves. It's something God does in us because apart from him working in us, we would never believe we're his enemies. So God has to make us alive. And in making us alive, he changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Right? We talked about that in chapter 10. He changes our affections. He changes our desires to desire the things of the Lord, to hunger for the word. Right? No one who is an enemy of the Lord is going to want to love and delight in the things that he says unless your heart's been changed, right? And so that's what we have been. We used to be enemies. Now we've been brought into the family, right? And so God effectually calls, he also justifies. So we see the connection. If you're effectually called, if you're regenerated, if you've been elected before the foundations of the world, God will call you in time and space at a particular time that he's appointed that we don't know exactly when that is. But if he does that, he will guaranteeedly justify you. Okay, so your standing before God isn't dependent on your obedience. Your standing before God isn't dependent on you maintaining yourself in the covenant. You're dependent upon, your standing before God depends solely on the work of Christ. Fully on his work. Now, yes, there's fruit that we are called to do, but that has no basis for justification. Um, So notice, uh, it happens not by infusing righteousness in them. So again, direct contradiction to Catholic Church. But by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Okay, so this isn't some legal fiction, right? He's not declaring us righteous even though we're not. Um, he is not having to infuse in us and muster up some righteousness so he can say, okay, now you're righteous. Your righteousness, you know... You have more righteousness than sin in your life, so I guess I'll I'll consider you righteous. No, God demands absolute perfection. So he doesn't infuse righteousness, meaning he he musters up righteousness within us by our own own works and obedience in order to declare us righteous. And the Catholic Church would say, well, he's doing that by you partaking in those different uh, sacraments. You You do it by coming to confession. You do it by uh, paying for... Uh, your, these different uh, things that you can do. I forgot the name of it. Uh, indulgences. Indulgences. Those help play a role in your justification, according to the Catholic Church. This is infused righteousness. And they would say, no, that's, this is absolutely not it. But actually, it's by pardoning your sins and accounting them as righteous. Accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Again, not for anything in them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself. So faith is required. He doesn't impute faith and just say, "Your faith." here's your faith. Um, and based in that, faith is a gift. It's not by the act of believing. So it's not by our, you know, oh, we finally believed. And it's not by our evangelical obedience, right? It's not by our obedience that we do out of love and gratitude. Justification isn't based on that, right? So evangelical obedience is that which happens in light of Now that you're saved, here's what you're to do, right? So we're going to see this in James in our text today, right? We've been 
the saved, we're first fruits called to live for God. Well, what does that mean? It means we're shining as lights. It means that we're going to you know, seek to see the word, seek to see God's law as a way to, to show us how to live and engage uh, in this world. And, and as we see that, we do that out of love and gratitude for what he's done. It has no basis or, in, in our justification. It has no basis in our acceptance before God or getting into heaven. Um, and so that is how we understand justification there, uh, for Christ's sake alone. So not by evangelical obedience. We will have evangelical obedience, but that's a fruit. It's a fruit. Ellie? I'm just make a comment, Pastor Jeff. I like, um, I just said it's an alien righteousness, because like that picture you said it in the new world, it's no, it's not righteousness we can ever find anything wrong. Right. It has to Right. And when it says outside of us, meaning all of humanity because we're all sinners. So we need someone who is outside of sin, namely the only person, Jesus, who can represent us in that sense. Yeah. So it's an alien righteousness. That was what the reform brought to the table there. Um, Not by infusing, not by imputing. Uh, our obedience or faith or anything like that, but but by imputing Christ's active obedience into the whole law and passive obedience unto his death. That's what's imputed. So when we say imputed, I want you to think deposited into their account. Right? So we have bank accounts. Consider your bank account of righteousness before God. Right? You have a debt you can never pay. Right? You have trillions and billions in the negative. And we can never pay that. There, you don't have a lifetime enough to pay the debt you owe because God's standards perfection. So Christ comes and in our account, he, depo- he makes a deposit. So he cancels the debt by, how does he do it? By his blood, by his death on the cross. The debt's canceled, but the bank account would be zero if that's all he did. But he did more. He lived a perfect life. He he was obedient unto the law. And he did that as our representative, as Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. The righteousness we need for right standing before God is perfect obedience to the law. Well, Christ does that as our substitute. So the debt has been paid. He deposits in us, canceling the debt in our account. Our debt goes to his account. He pays it in full by his blood. His righteousness is deposited into our account. So it's like you have billions and trillions of dollars now. So... It's something that is, obviously, we can't earn, we don't deserve, or anything like that. But it's a glorious truth. It's called, you know, the great exchange, people have called it. So notice it's, which uh, is by faith. Faith is not of themselves, it's a gift of God. Okay? Um, Any questions on paragraph one before we dive into, summarize two, and then we'll dive into three? Paragraph two deals with faith. Faith is that instrument. The instrument. It's not a it's not a root, it's not the basis, it's not the cause, it's an instrument, it's a channel, it's a tool to justification. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with the other saving graces 
and is no dead faith, but works by love. Okay, so this is important. It defines what faith is. Faith is resting and receiving Jesus. That's faith. So when we say justification by faith, it's meant resting and trusting in Jesus. It's not meant by justification by faithfulness, right? It's not based on our obedience. It's not based on that in any sense, in a right standing before God. It's not faith plus faithfulness. Um, very, very crucial distinction there. Um, and some have wanted to redefine faith as faithfulness, and that's not what is being said here. Faith is receiving and resting. Faith is the empty hand that takes only what Christ gives. Um, faith is the alone instrument. It's not just one instrument. It's the alone instrument, meaning it's the only instrument by which uh, justification comes. Faith is understanding, believing, trusting in Jesus, right? So that means it's much more than mere knowledge. It's not having, oh, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe you live a perfect life. That's not faith. That's, that's only having a knowledge or understanding the facts, right? What's different is if you're believing that and you're trusting in that for your whole life, right? So the Reformers called it this way. You have knowledge, assent, trust, right? And so that's what we're saying faith is. Faith is a knowledge, but it's more than that. You're, you're understanding what is actually being said and you're trusting your whole life in that. And that's what faith is. Faith is the alone instrument, the only instrument. So faith looks outside of us to another. It rests. Faith is that vehicle. It's the tool by which we receive justification. Um, again, faith is the requirement. It's the condition. But it's, it's a gift. It's something that is given to us. And so it's all the work of God. Right? Faith is the fruit of a true regenerated heart of being made from life to uh, dead to life, from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Faith is the fruit of that. Um, Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, Romans 4, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. The one who doesn't work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that's exactly what God does for us. Romans 3.23, we're going to see this later, um, where it talks about um, God is the one who justifies. He's the just and the justifier, right? For all of sin falls short of the glory of God, but it's God who justifies. How does he do it? By giving Christ as a propitiation for our sins so that he can be just and the justifier. So this is huge, but this faith, true faith, is never alone in the person justified. It's accompanied with all the other saving graces. In other words, the fruit that follows is true of that person, right? You're gonna, someone who has true faith is going to live a sanctified life, right? doesn't mean they're absolutely perfect here on out. It just means they're growing in sanctification. They're seeing this is what God's Word says. I want to do this in, out of love and gratitude for what He's done. That's fruit, right? And that's how James can say, Faith without works is dead. He's not saying faith plus faithfulness. He's saying your works are the fruit of true saving faith. It's not the basis of you maintaining or staying in a covenant. It's the fruit. True fruit um, is going to show in a true faith. 
And so our obedience there for gospel evangelical obedience is that which flows out of our fruit. It's love and gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're called to do good works. That's the fruit of what we are called to do. So the reason God doesn't just you know, save us and then takes us straight to heaven is because he, he, we're called to live lives here for him. We're called to be here light in a dark world. We're called to preach the good news of the gospel, right? It's the gospel that's the mean for salvation. It's that which goes out and changes hearts, dead to life, comes by the power of the gospel. And he's prepared these works for us. It's an it's a honor to be able to do these things out of love and gratitude for them that we should walk in them, Paul says. It's a privilege. You get to participate in those things. And if you're not living a, a sanctified uh, life of gratitude, right? You're, you're not able to do these things. You're not shining as a light. You're hindering your light. You're not being able to be used for the glory of God. Um, and so all these other saving graces that accompany f- faith are the fruit of faith. Okay, any questions or comments on that before we look at 11.3? Okay, let's read 11.3. Might have spent too much time reviewing, but we'll hopefully get through. It says, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who, were ju- who are justified and did by, him, by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them, make a proper, real, and full sanctification in God's justice in their behalf. Yet as much, or sorry, satisfaction of God's justice in their behalf. Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Okay, so a lot there. Um, notice Christ by his obedience and death did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified. So this is, again, summing up, further elaborating what we've already said in paragraph one. We have a great debt. The wages of sin is death. Right? God demands perfection. One sin is worthy of eternal torment in hell. That's the debt that must be paid for all of us because we have all sinned. Okay? But by his obedience, right? What obedience? We just heard it. Paragraph one, active, passive obedience. By his obedience and death, he fully discharged that debt of all those who are justified. So in other words, that debt is no longer on your account. It's been satisfied. It's been paid in full. Right? First Peter uh, says this, knowing you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Right? So the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us life is in the blood. So life is a payment for sin because a spilt blood indicates a death has been paid, right? And so we would have to do that for each and every one of ourselves if we didn't embrace Christ by faith, 
But Jesus, being the perfect God-man, did this once and for all for us. Fully discharged, right? So there's no more penance you have to pay. There's nothing left uh, that you have to do. It's not like Christ did 90%. Now here's the rest 10% you have to do to get into heaven. No, he's done it all. He's accomplished it. And justification is the legal declaration that says it is finished. It's been paid in full, right? It's fully discharged. Even when you go on and, you know, we're striving to grow in sanctification, but sanctification still implies you're going to struggle with sin. So even when you struggle with sin, right, the debt has been paid in full. Christ didn't just pay for your sins in the past. He pays for your sins in the past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't mean we go on sinning so grace may abound. By no means, right? We strive to put sin to death. But we're always going to be here in the flesh until Christ returns, and we're still going to have that struggle. Now, the more we grow in our understanding of the word, the more we grow in sanctification, the more we grow in holiness and being conformed to the image of Christ, we should actually grow in our deep hatred of sin. And you should look in the mirror and say, like Paul does, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm still a sinner because there's still remaining sin. right? And so it's not like we've achieved this nirvana perfection. No, it's that we're just growing more and more aware of our increasingly sinfulness, and we need to put that to death. That's how we show love and gratitude is by putting it to death. So Christ fully paid for it in full. It's been completely discharged of our debt. And it says, uh, it goes on, um, and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due them. Okay. Undergoing in their stead the penalty due them. So Christ, uh, he is our representative. He is, like, there's types and shadows in the Old Testament that picture this, right? We have the, the uh, lamb that was the blood of the lamb that was slain so that the Jews could go free in Exodus, right? That was a picture. It was a type. It says there, there is sins that were committed if you're in bondage, right, under the household of Egypt here. You're in bondage. And in order to be free, someone has to die. And it's not going to be you. I'm going to give a lamb. And that lamb, if you put the blood, in other words, act in faith, you might be like, what good is the blood going to do on my doorpost? Well, you have, it's, a tr- it's a way you act in faith. You show your faith by your fruit. And so those who did have true faith put it on their doorposts. And as we know, God used that sign to redeem the house of Israel and, and save them from the house of slavery. And that's why Romans picks up and says, uh, and Paul will pick up in Romans and say, that's why you're, you're redeemed by the blood of Christ. It, Christ is a spotless lamb. Christ is a sacrifice who provided atonement for you so that you could go free from the land of bondage of sin and death. It's the lamb of, it's the, the spilt blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. So he did that by the sacrifice of himself and the blood on the cross. Right? And so as Jesus is, Jesus knew this is, was going to happen. He wasn't, it wasn't an accident for him. He wasn't surprised. He, came, he says he came here for this purpose. Right? And then as that time neared, you remember the amount of turmoil inside of him. 
knowing how much wrath is going to be poured on him. And he would even pray, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Right? And, and the father said, no. You must, you must pay it in full. And Christ willingly, voluntarily, drank every last drop of wrath that was due for us. He drank it for himself. Our sins were placed on him. He paid it in full. And his blood was shed. He underwent the full penalty that was due us. He did that. Now, again, it's not some legal fiction. He makes a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on our behalf. So here is where we see justice of God shining forth. But we also see mercy and grace. Right? Because this is what was due us. And we would have to pay it for all eternity in hell if it was to our account. Christ pays it in full because he was spotless lamb who never sinned. So he was the only one who could take it on our account. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And he, this was a real, proper, full satisfaction of God's wrath. God, being a just and holy God, must punish sin. Right? God cannot just be a forgiving God on account of his justice. Right? So he's not like the, uh, you know, the, the grandfather to his children, to his grandkids, who wants to just say, you know what, we just won't tell dad. Or I know you, did, you messed up here, we'll just pretend it never happened. Right? God is a judge. He must judge justly. And so while that might sound good, oh, well, that's loving and forgiving, it's not just. If a crime was committed, a punishment must happen. So imagine you have a judge who all the evidence has been put before this judge about this criminal who is deserving of death, and, God, and the judge says, oh, yeah, I, I see the evidence, but uh, we'll let him go. Like, what? Do you realize what has happened? you realize what, what the law requires? And so God is very nature is a just God. He must punish sin. And so this is the way he does it. He does it so he can be the just one holding up his righteousness and punishing sin. But we are acquitted and forgiven because Christ does it for us. So therefore, he's the just and the justifier. The cross was the only answer. And in God's infinite wisdom, that's what he displayed to show his full attributes of love, grace, mercy, and justice to us. That's a glorious thing. Turn to Isaiah 53, and let's look a little bit out about this. Isaiah 53, we have the suffering servant on our behalf. And I want you to be thinking of this kind of uh, language here of penalty, satisfaction of wrath, and then the debt that is paid. Okay, look at verse 4. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God pours his wrath on the suffering servant in our stead. 
Look down at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here we see the the summary of what our confession is trying to say here. Christ takes upon our debt. We get his righteousness. So it's a glorious thing that we see here. And then it says this, Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, both freely, not of anything in them, their justification is only of free grace. So real quick, a few passages. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, notice this kind of uh, legal language here, this reckoning of our account, representation. He made, uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See that transaction taking place. We get his righteousness, he gets our sin, he pays for it in full, and we embrace him by faith, Second Corinthians 5.21. And then Romans 3, as we talked about, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Right? Propitiation meaning the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus was put forward as the one who would bear our sins, whose God wrath would be poured out and he would do it all the way to the last drop and his wrath would be satisfied. So while it, notice it, it also brings out that it, it's a free grace. So this is a free thing for us. It's a, it's a free gift that we are justified in God's sight by faith. It's free for us, but it costs Christ everything. It cost him his very life. Again, it affirms, not because of anything done in us, not because of anything in us. Like It's not like we mustered up enough favor to say, Jesus, Jesus would say, you know what? That guy's good enough for me to die for him. No, absolutely not. God has elected before the foundations of the world those whom he will redeem, and Christ came and actually accomplished that. So not because of anything done in us. Not because he looked down the quarters of time and saw you do a great work for him. He did it because that was what was determined before the foundations of the world. So here we see mercy and justice meet together. Again, their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. The exact justice. There was nothing left over. It was paid in full. There's nothing left for you to have to, you know, go to purgatory and burn off for a little while before, you know, you're made right. Jesus paid it all. He paid it fully. He absorbed the full wrath of God. And that's supposed to bring in us, it's going to well up in us, this idea of wanting to live out of gratitude for him. If you really understand what you've been saved from and what Christ has done, you want to live a life of gratitude. Ephesians 
1 says this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's all because of his grace that we have this forgiveness that Christ was willing to go and redeem us by his blood. Ephesians 2, so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Right? That doesn't mean there's not works involved. There is. There are works of gratitude that has no basis for your salvation because Christ has earned it all. So whenever we try to say, okay, well, here's what's required for you to get into heaven, or whenever we say, you know, we have an initial justification and final justification, we're belittling the work of Christ. We're, we're saying, he's done this much, now you have to do a little bit more to maintain it, to stay in it, as if his work wasn't enough. Christ's work was complete. It was the exact justice that God demanded. And so now out of the response for us realizing that is, is to live a life out of good deeds, to live a life of gratitude, not to merit anything, but to just show our love. And that's what he's talking about, evangelical obedience. Right? That's what we are now to do in light of that great gift you've been given. Right? James is going to bring that out in our text today. God is the giver of all good gifts. This is his greatest gift. This is the greatest gift he could ever give. So now, what are you to do out of that? Live as first fruits. First fruits to his redeeming uh, the rest of the world. Right? He is redeeming us right now. We are, it's a, already not yet. We are being made more and more to the image of Christ. We're still going to struggle with sin, but we're called to live out of holy lives for him. Right? And that's why he's, I'm stealing too much from my sermon, but that's why he's going to tell us, look, how can you say then God is tempting you with sin? You can't do that because he wants you to live these holy and righteous lives. He's redeemed you for this purpose. So live out of gratitude for him. Any thoughts or comments before we close? Ellie? Yeah, and so the nice thing is none of that has your basis for standing before God. Um, it's all based on the work of Christ. And so that should motivate you, not discourage you, to say, you know what? I want to live my life for him. And I'm not going to do it perfectly, but Christ sees that as something that is, that is still good. Yeah, out of love, gratitude for him, opportunities, boldness. We know what his word requires, James is going to go on and tell us, if you're going to do this, you have to live by his word. And, you know, he, he goes on to flush out the rest of the book. Here's what his word requires for us, how to live out of love and gratitude. It's not to say, here's how you stay within the covenant community. Here's how you stay within this by your obedience and your work. No, it's Christ has done it. Now here's how you bear fruit. Here is the kind of fruit we are to have in light of what he's done. Christ has done it all. He's paid the debt. He's earned the righteous standard on our account. Rest in him. Rest and receive what he's done. And if you're resting and receiving, that true faith is going to be revealed by the things it does. I think it's important about 
in reading your passages for your um, sermon today on the mind that the power to convey the truth is through um, Christ and God pruning us. And maybe not to have this attitude which I hear time and time is I need to love my wife more or I need to well God is going to prune you to do that if you allow him to do it. Yeah or and you, you're going to allow him to do it because the divine or the divine dresser, etc. conveys that right. and be more fruitful. Yeah. And so you that is good to feel that. I need to do this, right? But that's not, yeah, again, it's not your basis for standing before him. It should be out of love and gratitude. Yeah, I want to do this. And the word of God is going to convict us and say, okay, if we're, if we're living according to this word, we should see ourselves if we never arrived. There's always something better. I need to pray more. Right? I need to read more. I need to study more. I need, we should never feel like we've arrived and we're satisfied with where we are. Because, again, what's the standard? Perfection. But it's out of love and gratitude. We should always feel we can do better. But, again, our standing before God isn't based on that. That just shows how much gratitude you have. And I think the more we realize what we've been saved from, the more we realize what he's done for us to save us, the more gratitude you're going to show in the things you do. And that comes out. But true faith, we'll have that. We'll have the fruit. We'll have the good deeds. But your justification is nowhere based on that. Okay, any thoughts, comments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think the analogy James gives is a good one because James is going to say first fruits, which in the and then was a uh, it was an offering that they had to do in the Old Testament. But the scripture is very clear to say this is an offering of gratitude. Um, so it's not it's something you do out of your love for God. Um, they were still called to do it. Uh, where the confusion happens is when we think, you know, um, we're just like Israel in this sense. We have to do all these same things. Um, when that's a different time in which God is showing here on earth, here's what a picture looks like of kingdom on earth. You know, you were to operate this way in the land, and here's these other rules and sacrifice and different things they had to do, right? There's ritual purity, which is not based on anything morally. There's connections to it. But ritual purity just wanted to say you're set apart, right? And so you have all these extra things that are there in the Old Testament that when we come to the New Testament, the ritual and the ceremonial rules and stuff that Israel had that was required has been fulfilled, and the moral law remains, right? And there's some things we can read the old, old, our Old Testament and say, you know, there's some good principles we can take from these things, Right? But we're not commanded to, you know, do every single one of those things, right? So, you know, I'm sure many of us are wearing, you know, cotton and polyester blend here today. And if you're in the Old Covenant, that's punishment. 
right? And so there's things that carry over and there's things that not, and that's where having a good just understanding of biblical theology happens. And, you know, now we are called to live, um, you know, the Bible is very clear, and especially New Testament, we're sojourners and exiles. And in so doing, we're called to live in this land in a way that gives God the glory, that shine as lights in a dark world. And this is not our home. Our home is the new heavens, new earth. That is not now, but will come when Christ comes again and ushers it in. And we're called to live in those ways. So there's some, I would say, continuity and discontinuity within that. And it just means we, the more we study and grow in our Bibles, we'll see and understand that. So my hope is, yeah, we'll grow in those things. And you know, I want to further teach. You know, That's why it's important biblical theology to have a broad understanding of what the Bible teaches. The covenants that we went over in chapter 7, that really helps us understand the continuity and discontinuity we see within Old Testament, New Testament. So that's a short answer. To, that was a big question, huge question. But uh, my encouragement would be, you know, just keep reading, study more. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll all learn and grow in those things together. So. All right, we got close, so let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this time. Lord, we're thankful for the doctrine of justification that our standing before you is not based on our personal obedience or maintaining obedience. It's all been done in the work of Christ. It's been fully paid in full. Um, And when we realize that, Lord, help us out of love and gratitude to bear fruit uh, that shows and testifies of the faith that we have. Help us to have a boldness knowing that you are at work in us, that you prepared these works beforehand. And uh, Lord, we have nothing to claim in light of our salvation In light of our faith, it's all been given to you and achieved by Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.